amazing. <laughs> so the member of our cider cart who designed the label, she sort of she took an old printing press, uh, you know, to sort of mm -hmm. it's a people's press is what we call ourselves. But it made me realise actually the old printing press was using fruit press technology. You know the, the original yeah, yeah, printing yeah. press is it's, it's, it's the same thing. The same, yeah, words and pictures and, and fruits yeah, are all interlinked. Yeah, yeah. Would you like to drink some during the? Uh, sure, let's have a glass. Great. Okay. okay. Well, it's just a small one for me because I've got it at home. I don't know what this one's like. They're all slightly different. So okay. <laughs> what so what are the thanks apples? Enough, thanks. Uh, it's everything. We put them all. I mean, we, so we've got forty trees, and we just stick everything in together. It's um, so it, it's hit and miss. I mean, it's not. Cheers. Cheers. It's, it's green um, for one. Mm. They're always slightly different. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. That's very smooth. Yeah, it's all right, isn't it? Yeah. It's um, it's a good time of year to drink cider. It's always the good time of year to drink <laughs> no, cider. Actually, that's really not true. It really isn't true. That's what people think, but. If it goes beyond about midsummer, mm -hmm. it starts to get really harsh because all the sugar gets used up, and sure. then it's like you, know, you could strip graffiti with it. It's very smooth. It's more like apple juice. It's one of those yeah. kinds of sizes that yeah. creeps up on you because you don't realise it's that. No, I know exactly. You've got you've got to be careful with these ones. It's still got a tiny bit of fizz in it, hasn't mm. it? Yeah. All of my interviews should start with cider. Might normally end with cider. <laughs> in the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Hello and welcome to Trees A Crowd for this, the first episode of our new season. My name is David Oakes and as you can hear, I am finally allowed back in the room with my guests again. And for season four, we're returning to the show's original format. Whether political activist, climbing tree or vegan extolling virtue of bee, I get to talk with people who are dedicated to or who are inspired by our natural world. This year, we'll be coming at you once a month, and to kick things off, you've already heard his voice. I'm talking to writer, investigative journalist, environmental and political activist, amateur cider enthusiast, George Monbiot. You may know George from having read his book Feral, which extols the many virtues and indeed different kinds of rewilding, or seen him in internet-breaking TED Talks and YouTube videos with the likes of Greta Thunberg, or perhaps you know him better for being arrested in 2019, when with members of Extinction Rebellion he shut down London's Oxford Circus and made my journey home after interviewing the chairman of the Wildlife and Countryside Link, a delightfully slow one. Either way, we are back. This is season four of Trees A Crowd, and this is George Monbiot. So there's a lot to get through. So first question, I know that you come from a rich political background with father and grandfather both heavily involved in the Conservative Party. Mm -hmm. And in your latest book, you extol the virtues of having a grandmother who had a freezer full of whale meat. So my first question is, where between the Conservative Party and whale meat does George Monbiot begin? Yeah, well, it's... um. It's a weird one because any resemblance between me and my family sometimes seems entirely <laughs> coincidental. I don't really know where it came from. I mean, both both my parents were involved in conservative activism, one mm -hmm. sort and another, and I never got it. Even as a small child, it was just why why do you want to do that? What what is it about it that you find attractive? And the more I looked at it, and particularly the more I saw kind of people they hung out with, the less attractive it looked to me. 
and at the same time I had this obsession with wildlife which was there I, I'm told that even when I was in my pram I was fixated on birds mm-hmm. and, and I just couldn't stop birds in particular yeah yeah. well I think you know they were the ones that caught my attention because they moved but before very long at all I was um, just into everything every everything alive um, at my request my third birthday present was a subscription to what was then called Animals magazine later became Wildlife later became BBC Wildlife um, and in fact my very first journalism I did was for BBC Wildlife you got full circle already yeah, from the very beginning yeah and um, my grandma, actually, it wasn't her who had the freezer full of whale meat. It was a local shop which was okay. had a freezer full of whale meat. And I sort of discussed this as a way to you know, let's not fetishize the um, food economy of previous of eras. Yeah. Uh, but she she was she was a tough customer. She she wasn't an easy woman at all. But we shared a great love of nature, mm-hmm. and and she took me out whatever the weather you know it was a six o'clock start and you were outdoors after your porridge which you could stand a spoon in and um and then you know in driving rain in howling wind whatever we were out just looking at stuff and exploring stuff together to what end because she enjoyed it or because yeah yeah there's nothing she, she, else she, to do she, well yeah there was probably quite a lot of that but no she she was madly into it like i was it was a bit like a female version of last of the summer wine she had all these crazy friends, these uh, completely bonkers old ladies uh-huh. who I loved I thought they were brilliant one of them um, had a skirt tied up with baler twine and had had pigs rooting up her garden and literally had chickens clucking in and out of her kitchen mm-hmm. around her feet in the kitchen and she uh, you know, we drank tea and jam jars with her and she always gave us some eggs to take away sometimes goose eggs and and these, they, I found them fascinating, these people. I really enjoyed their company. And while, you know, my, my grandma, she, she wasn't an easy person to love. She didn't have a lot of love in her, but she had, we just had a lot in common. We enjoyed the same things. Did you find that it was, you had to go to an older generation to find people who were interested in nature at the time? Like, were people your own age, your friends, were they, were they party to this? Were they running down to the lake and luring fish or were they yeah no I had a few friends who were into it in fact quite a few in the village we would we would go off together and we'd do a bit of bird watching we would look for nap flints around where I lived there were quite a few of them we found mm. some really beautiful ones um, flint knives once a leather scraper which was I think the most beautiful almost the most beautiful thing I've ever found mm. and what was really striking in retrospect about where I was brought up is that I was brought up surrounded by rewilding but I didn't see it at the time there wasn't that word at the time no it was um, it's a modern concept yeah we were um, living on the edge of a common which had been a golf course and for some reason the golf course had been abandoned and nature was returning to and and you could see the different stages of succession every year I grew up with it I grew Uh up with the woods and I was absolutely fascinated by that and seeing how nature was changing, seeing how the ecosystem changed, mm-hmm. how different species came in at different stages of succession. And in fact, for the first time in a very long time, I, I went back to, to, to that common last summer. And it's still a common? And, well, it is still a common. And as a small child, I'd noticed the first oak seedlings coming through the rough, mm-hmm. where, where, where the rough of the golf course sure. had been. And I went back, I couldn't get my arms around them. 
they'd, they'd, they were that big. It was the first time I realised just how old I am. <laughs> These enormous, towering trees. I thought, well, wait a minute, they weren't there. What, what? Oh my God! This is this is me. This, this you know, I've that's how old I've got. I'm the size of those trees or the age of those trees. That's fantastic. I think if more golf courses could return back to being a natural space, that'd be a good thing. It was one it of the would be a net gain for humanity. It, it was one of the greatest things that I saw Caroline Lucas support during the pandemic was mm-hmm. just trying to get private golf courses open to mm-hmm. the public because you had all of that open space, quite a lot of it which yeah. was close to urban sprawls, yeah. that people could have just got out into. I know. And yet know. they didn't. Land ownership is so mean. Not all of it, you know, there are a few open-hearted landowners, but not many. You know, there's something about it which encourages exclusion and often quite a lot of nastiness as mm-hmm. well. And the question which you know, always strikes me is this is like, what entitles one person to more natural wealth than the other? I mean, it's an mm-hmm. old question. It's a question that Rousseau asked. It's a question many people have asked. Um, Gerald Winstanley asked it. And, but, you know, we believe that the numbers in your bank account translate into a right to own a concomitant portion of natural wealth. Mm-hmm. But why? What, what, what natural law, what principle of justice sure. translates one into the other but we we allow this to happen we just say oh yeah well if you're rich you can you can buy a huge tract of the planet you can pollute a huge tract of the yeah. sky with your private jet you can you can eat much of the ecosystem with your bluefin tuna or your yeah. beef or whatever it is and and you're entitled to all that natural wealth and we're no longer entitled to it there's a weird thing that i've seen with a few wealthy rewilding proponents who have taken up a lot of land and are investing money in making it rewilded but similarly at the same time denying the right to roam and Mm. denying Mm. access to it it's a strange thing because on one surface you see a joint between the left and the right wings of politics both enjoying the idea of nature and rewilding and getting us back into a world where perhaps there's apex predators wolves etc and yet Many on the right see it as a chance to make something beautiful and safe for themselves to yeah, see yeah. and to visit and to get all the sort of green credentials for having done so. And yet they don't understand that it should be about an experiential thing for everybody. Yeah, no, I, I'm very much with you on that. I mean, while obviously it's much better that landowners rewild their land than trash it, mm-hmm. and you know, we should congratulate them on doing so, it's much better still to have a democratic rewilding, a people's rewilding. And so I'm very supportive of groups like Trees for Life, which buy land through public subscription for everyone, mm-hmm. and then volunteers come and they plant trees and do whatever else needs to be done to, to, to rewild that land. And it belongs to broader society yeah. from the beginning. Similarly with community buyouts, like the Langham. Yeah, Moore Langham's buyout, been amazingly Scotland. successful. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that, that's the rewilding I want to see much more of. Community-led. Yeah. Super. So back to your uh, golf course mm. when the, the saplings of oak were much smaller. Mm. You went on to do a zoology degree. Mm. Why? Because <laughs> well, eventually you hated it. It's well documented yeah, how much you despised it. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a good question. I mean, you get channelled. You know, if, if you're bright at schoolwork, which isn't the same at all as being generally bright because mm-hmm. I'm really stupid about certain things. Give me an engine and I'm finished. <laughs> I can't sure. do anything with it. But if you're bright at schoolwork, you get channeled towards Oxford or Cambridge, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and so and you think, oh well everyone's telling me that's where I ought to go and so that's where you end up. And I was it was a really bad decision because not least because you couldn't just do biology at yeah. Oxford. You had to choose 
one half or the other half, or not quite halves, but you know, animals or plants. Sure. Okay. So, and I love plants, but and I also love fungi and I love bacteria. I love the whole whole suite of life. But but you had to choose one or the other, and, mm-hmm. and already. You know, at A level, our education is ridiculously specialised, mm-hmm. and we end up knowing very little of the world and being scarcely able to talk to each other after a while because we don't understand each other's subjects. Sure. And then you go to university, and it's so narrow. You're squeezed into this tiny tube that you come out knowing less than you did when you go in. Sure. And a lot of the course was totally fascinating, you know, and I loved. The, the subjects we studied, but my frustration was the subjects we weren't studying. Sure. And that was even the case within the field of biology. So after a great deal of lobbying, we persuaded one of the lecturers to give us a, a, a lecture on environmental issues because there weren't any. There was no mm. environmental course content at all on that or any other degree at that university. So after some persuasion, he he, he agreed to do this. and. It was even at the time, even as a spotty student, I was painfully aware that this was ridiculous. You know, mm-hmm. said, "Yeah, well, the Amazon is being cut down by all these peasants. I would machine gun them." He literally said, "I would," and we were just like, "What? What is this?" And we realised, you know, you can be a brilliant biologist yeah. and actually have no understanding of the political context at all, no interest or engagement with what's happening to the natural world you love. How can this be? What has happened to us that we end up so boxed in mm-hmm. that we can not see the things immediately surrounding our own field? So what you're basically saying is you need to be proponent of multidisciplinary studies. You need to make sure that everything blurs into another. I mean, you, to talk about something that's happening right now, they, we've just launched a natural history GCSE. Mm-hmm. Now, I would argue that that could potentially be the same problem. You end up just doing something in one direction and not distinctly put it into a cultural context, historical con- context, social, political context, and not realise that everything is interrelated at that stage. It's still boxed off on its own. And in fact, it's even worse because you'll end up sapping the elements of natural history out of appropriate like biological studies or even English literature. Like it, it, it. Well, I mean, I'm not against the natural history GCSE. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's in itself a positive thing, but I think you're absolutely right with a general critique of the, the education system that... These subjects are artificially boxed up so they can be tested. So you, you, know, you can do your exam in, in biology and you can do your exam in chemistry and in physics and they have to be separated in, into these boxes in a way that doesn't occur in nature at all. You know, everything is connected to everything else and it's often in the connections that it gets most fascinating. Sure. And added to that is the problem that we emerge from school without any conception of the fundamental principles of life, which are the principles of complex systems. If we're told about how the world works at all, simple systems are used as analogies Mm -hmm. for complex systems, but simple systems and complex systems are completely different. They operate on entirely different principles. And because we're not taught about complex systems, we just don't understand how the world works. Not just the natural world, but also human society, which is a series of interlocking complex systems. Mm-hmm. Human beings in themselves. I mean, our brain is a complex system. Our body is a complex system. But every single thing on which we rely is a complex system. There are human-made complex systems that we're surrounded with, like the global financial system mm-hmm. is a complex system. And they operate on these totally different principles 
to the simple systems we're taught, whether it's an electrical circuit or whether it's the sort of diagrammatic view of a food web sure. and stuff like that. It, it, it's just, that is not how the world works. So we're actually misled. We, we're taught it wrong from the very beginning. And as a result, uh, huge numbers of people never grasp it, never get to understand how the world works. But surely the only way to get people to understand a complex system is constant and continual education. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we could all do with that yeah. <laughs> in, in everything, obviously. But, I, I mean, there's nothing inherently difficult about teaching complex systems. I mean, sure. you know, there are basic principles, paradoxically, quite simple principles on which complex systems operate. Sure. Um, it's no harder to teach someone about a complex system than it is an, a, about an electrical circuit or about the principles on which complex systems run. I mean, they're really quite straightforward and consistent across systems but we're just not taught them at all sure and so when stuff happens we can't understand it because we're trying to force it into an understanding of simple systems and it's very clear listening to most politicians that they they don't get it either they just don't grasp it and as a result they expose us to constant disasters so is that what you were trying to do when you left university and went into journalism trying to express a greater opportunity for the public to get a truthful appraisal of what's going on in the world, however complex. Broadly, yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, I could have carried on in academia and it was just a revolting prospect to me, the idea of sort of borrowing, tunnelling even deeper and narrower than one tiny sliver of a tiny subject. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get out into the world and I wanted to explore it and really find out what was happening. And, and so what I did in my the whole of my last year at university was I just battered on the doors of the BBC Natural History Unit saying, look, you don't have any investigative environmental work. There's, and across the whole BBC, there's no investigative environmental journalism mm-hmm. taking place. I could do this for you. I, I could bring you something you don't have. And eventually, I was phoned up by the head of the Natural History Unit and said, you're so fucking persistent. I have to give you the job. And so they took me on um, as a radio producer with a mandate to do investigative environmental work. And, you know, I was was very wet behind the ears. Um, I had a lot to learn, but I worked very hard. I mean, the first programme I made, I came into the studio on Monday morning and I left on Thursday evening. Mm -hmm. I just worked straight the way through, all through the nights, the whole lot, didn't sleep the whole time. And and I came out on Thursday evening theatre think I've got the basics of how to make a program it's just this sort of total immersion and um, and before long we were making some really cracking investigative uh-huh. um, programs uh, we exposed some massive issues one of them made global news it was the sinking of the y- yes yeah. the, the, what seemed to be the deliberate scuppering of a bulk carrier an enormous ship with massive environmental consequences and that won a Sony award and you know and it just looked like thought right this is great this is what I want to be doing I'm just going to stick with this and then uh, in January 1987 I'd been at the BBC about a year and a half by then mm-hmm. Mrs Thatcher launched her coup against it and forced the director general Alistair Milne to resign put an accountant in his place my boss came in the following day and said that's it no more investigative journalism and I said well, what, what do you mean and he said it's from the top, we've been told no more investigative journalism. And he said, but, but, but you can't have journalism if it's not, not investigative. investigative. Um, and he said, look, sorry, I, you know, I, I wish I could change it, but that, that's the way it is. And, and the BBC's never recovered from that. Mm. I mean, it never got back to what it was before that moment. Do you think it was partly your success that made 
Mrs Thatcher decided to do? <laughs> I wish. No, no there, there were two things in particular which she really got furious about. One of them was a programme called Maggie's Militant Tendency about the front benches who had been actual fascists in their youth. Mm-hmm. And the other one was a series called Secret Society about this unauthorised government spending on like, spy satellites and various other things which exposed the fact that basically the government had been deceiving Parliament. Mm-hmm. And she went absolutely ballistic, you know, so much for free speech, you know, and and basically shut it down as an effective organ of journalism, and and it just has never come back. As a pro- as a proponent of rewilding, and having seen investigative journalism castrated at that time, is there not an argument that that what you should be doing now is rewilding journalism, mm. as opposed to rewilding the natural world and trying mm. to get journalists. Because that's what you are first and foremost. You still are writing for The Guardian every week. Mm, mm. Like, how do you get the balls, how do you stick the balls back on to journalism? Yeah, yeah. Well, to an extent it is happening. I mean, there's a lot of citizen journalism. I mean, mm. you could call that a rewilding of journalism sure. in that it's sort of getting out of that sort of rigid box which is created by the mainstream media, which is very limited. Um, the spectrum has definitely been widened by some really brilliant alternative media developed on social media, a lot of great video making, a lot of great new sites um, for both news and, and analysis and the rest of it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really delighted to see all the competition. For, I, mean, I mean, I genuinely am because because it's been very lonely, you know, trying to pursue this agenda in, in the mainstream media. Yeah, there's almost no outlets. Sure. You know, even the BBC is a completely locked door, um, and very few people engage in it. I mean, for a long time, I was the only remaining environmental columnist in in Britain. Everyone else had been sacked. Um, now, now there's there's a couple more um, have come in, which is great. But it did feel very lonely. It sort of felt like, you know, this is mad. This yeah. is really crazy. Here we are facing the greatest predicament humankind has ever encountered and no one's allowed to write about it. So you're in a world where no one gets taught at university despite the fact we knew about most of this stuff since the 60s. No one gets told about it in the 80s because journalism's not going anywhere. And so I guess here we are in 1987 you head off to Indonesia to mm. to do what exactly? So what was happening at the time? Um, Indonesia was governed by this brutal horrendous dictatorship Suharto who um, was backed by the US as a sort of Cold War asset against the Soviet Union. Um, He had murdered hundreds of thousands of people. Um, He he was one of the most vicious people on earth, Mm -hmm. Um, but he had the full backing of of the West. And um, through um, direct US and UK aid and the World Bank, he was moving hundreds of thousands of people from Java and Bali, the sort of inner um, islands of Indonesia, out to the rest of the archipelago, particularly the further flung islands, in in the guise of relieving population pressure sure. in, in, in Java and Bali, and we're going to spread people out. But what it was really about was sort of securing an Indonesianized archipelago, because I mean, it's a vast number of islands stretching across a great distance, and with loads of indigenous people doing mm-hmm. their own things, speaking their own languages, their own cultures, and Suharto had this sort of classic dictator's dream of making everyone like me and everyone subject to one rule of law um, with the, the me sitting at the pinnacle of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that to happen, he had to spread what he saw as his people 
out to colonize the, the rest of the archipelago. And it was a sort of internal imperial program. Sure. It was a colonization program. And in doing so, displacing huge numbers of indigenous people and destroying the most stunning and amazing places. Were you there for the people or there for the wildlife? Oh, both. Right. You can't separate. I, by then, I was, I'd become aware that these things cannot be separated. You know, again, we put them into boxes. We say, are you concerned about human mm -hmm. beings or are you concerned about the natural world? Say, you can't be concerned about human beings unless you're concerned about the natural world because the greatest threat to humanity is the destruction of the natural world. And, you know, from... That was already obvious to me yeah. at that point. And, and yet all the time, you know, you get these people who think they're being so clever on radio programs. Right? So if there was a tiger crossing the road and if there was a child crossing the road, and, oh, for God's sake, you know, they're trying, they're well, pretending. You wouldn't see the tiger because it would blend in with the zebra crossing. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're pretending, you know, that, that these are totally separate issues. They've boxed uh -huh. them up just the same. So anyway... And I persuaded a good friend of mine, the photographer, Adrian Arbib, to come with me. Um, and we were young men, and we were totally reckless. I mean, this is why wars get fought, because you think you're immortal. You, know, you, you forged your travel documents in the first place. We forged, forged travel you documents. got lost because, in the forest, surviving yeah, insects and rats. Yeah, <laughs> got stung into a coma by hornets. Well, that's what you do with, it, uh, with hornets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was insane. I mean, it was genuinely miraculous that we came out of there. Were you there to document and then go home and report? Yeah, yeah. Then Did you find that you were becoming an active participant and trying mm -hmm. to stop it? Like, where, mm -hmm. at what point does a journalist become an activist? So, um, had we tried to report from the ground in West Papua, we would have been killed. Simple uh -huh. as that. You know, we, we had to, all the time, either completely avoid the authorities, which, you know, in the midst of the rainforest is relatively easy, but in other places we needed to investigate became very difficult and hazardous. Mm -hmm. At one point we were convinced we were going to be shot. In fact, had they managed to establish a radio link with Jakarta, I'm sure we would have been, but for three days they tried and they failed throughout and they eventually said, oh, for God's sake, go, and they let us go, which was a, a miracle. Um, and then we had to sort of, pose as missionaries and bird watchers and all sorts of things we, sure. we weren't supposed to be there at all yeah, you know yeah. foreigners just weren't allowed in but we sort of bluffed and blustered our way through and then it was only when we came home and wrote up the book and made a radio series we've recorded out there that we could then release the findings but even here they came after me so for two weeks these um two indonesian security service people sat in a car outside my house <laughs> followed me everywhere I went, um, the first public meeting I did um, when my book came out, this, um, what did she call herself, um, a, a cultural attaché at the Indonesian embassy, came up to me afterwards and said, that was very interesting, Mr. Mommy, puts out her hand, I shake her hand, she grabs me by the wrist with her other hand, and while she's holding me, this guy looms in over her shoulder and just knocks off a roll of film straight into my face, and, and it was basically to say... We're yeah, on to we, you. We've We're got following you. you. We got you. We know where you live, and 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 it's yeah. I wasn't. I didn't feel they were going to harm me, but it was. It you know you thought okay, yeah. if this is what they do in the UK, you know you could just get a feel for what it's like. I mean, we knew very well what it was like for for people trying to resist the regime yeah. in their own country. Okay, here's an interesting question. You've whether it's being put in a coma by hornets or getting cerebral malaria or having to survive the wildernesses of, of rainforest and whatever 
or whether it's the cultural attaches of, of threatening government regimes, would you say your life has been more threatened by the natural world mm-hmm. or more threatened by human society? Oh, I know exactly what my life has been threatened by. Me. <laughs> by my own... Uh, I mean, just astonishing recklessness. You know, I look back and think, how? what was I thinking? I mean, I... I, I yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, I, I, the adrenaline mm. was. Uh, yeah, I really got off on that. Uh, but it was just. I mean, again and again, the same in Brazil. I mean, I spent two years in Brazil investigating stuff and and directly confronting mafia people. You know, mm. really nasty people who killed people left, right, and centre. And directly confronting the police who were supporting them and the, mm-hmm. the the state governor who was supporting them and stuff. And and you know, on one occasion had to be smuggled out of the, the state o- overnight and into another one because otherwise I would have been killed. And in fact, my, my death was reported in a Brazilian newspaper. Congratulations. Um, yeah, well, thank you. Yes, um, <laughs> there was a wonderful moment. Uh, uh, soon after I got, I got back to Manaus, the city I was living, which was in a different state from the one I'd just got uh-huh. into trouble in, I um, went into the office of the campaign which had put me onto the story I'd been investigating um, to basically debrief, tell them what I'd found. Mm-hmm. And when I walked in, the guy was on the phone, and, and so he gestured for me to sit down, and, um, and he said, um, he, he said, just hold on a minute. And after a while he said, oh, actually the very person you might want to talk to has come into the office, he could help you with this. And it turned out it was the Guardian, this was long before I worked for the Guardian, it was the Guardian's Brazil correspondent, Jan Rocha, on, 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 on the line to him, wanting to know about this story of um, a British journalist who had been killed in Marignan, <laughs> the state I'd just come from. And, and he said, oh, George has just come back from Marion. He, he might know something about it. So, um, so I said, what's this? She said, oh, yeah, this um, <laughs> British journalist has been killed. I said, oh, no. That's said, terrible. That's terrible. I said, I didn't even know there was another British journalist working in Marion. Where, whereabouts was it? She said, well, it's close to Bacabal. I said, that's exactly where I was. <laughs> oh, my God. So, and what was he doing? He was investigating land conflicts. Oh, my God, there were two of us. And I didn't even link up with this person. And, and Were you a I bit said, jealous what, at that stage? You're going, well, maybe he's got a better story than I have. <laughs> and, and I said, what was his name? She said, well, George, mm, I can't really pronounce it. I said, ah, <laughs> I think there might be a problem with your story. Um, far be it for me to spoil it. No, <laughs> um, I'd ask you when you stopped putting yourself in harm's way, but you got arrested in 2019. So, it, I mean, even though you stopped maybe throwing yourselves around far-flung rainforests and the like, you still... Like to I mean, rattle a few cages yeah, from time I mean, to time. As 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 a white guy getting on in years, being arrested in central London is not scary. Not you know, I mean, it's yeah. Obviously, uh, for black people being arrested in London can be very scary indeed. Or for people who are seen as vulnerable, easy to you know bully. Um, but not so much for me. I mean, I've had some scary stuff in this country. Um, the Perhaps the worst thing was um, on the Rhodes protest in the mid nineties. Um, the protest against is it in Somerset. The, uh, this uh, this was just outside Bath, yeah, which okay. I think at the time was in Somerset. Um, and it was yeah the Salisbury Hill bypass, which they were building through this beautiful hill with an RNH fort, hill fort on top, and uh, smashing up all these houses and lovely trees and stuff. And we were trying to stop them. And um, I got beaten up by security guards. They they um, uh, threw me onto a pile of 
um, fencing material with the spikes sticking out. One of them went straight through the top of my foot mm. and out the other side, it smashed the middle bone. Another one missed my neck by like a centimetre. You know, they, they couldn't give a shit, these people. And that day when I was taken into A&E, there were 11 of us waiting to be treated, all with major injuries which had been inflicted. You know, we weren't fighting these guys. Sure. We were just being beaten up by them. Do you think, I mean, the equivalent now, I guess, in terms of roads or railways is HS2, mm. and there are stories of guards being heavy-handed. Yeah. Do you yeah. think it's got any better? No, it's, no. The same, it's the same dynamic. I mean, they're not quite as blatant as they were because of social media yeah. and smartphones. You know, people, people take footage, and so they can't quite get away with it. This was before that era, and so they could get away with a lot more. I mean, I couldn't even get the police to, to take a statement from me. So to begin with, that's right, um, I went to the hospital and they bandaged it up um, and they said, you'll have, uh, you'll have to wait for your operation. Cause, um, and, and so I got my friend to take me down to the police station. So this is before I'd been, you know, I had, had the pro- proper reconstructive surgery. And the police just pretended we weren't there. You know, and this was a time when you had desk sergeants in yeah. police stations, and I was like knocking on the hatch, and this guy was just like, oh, blah, 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 you know, they could see that we were road protesters, yeah, we were pretty yeah. scruffy and the rest. And, you know, we say, excuse me, hello, hello. And it's like, pretending we weren't there. So, so eventually I thought, right, there's only one thing for it. I took my bandage off, took my dressing off, and blood started pouring all <laughs> over the floor. They were out of there in seconds, saying, right, okay, what is it? What is it? Um, after Brazil, I'm, I'm I'm running through a career because we haven't even got onto your book or spoken properly about rewilding, and there are many stories I'd love to hear. But after Brazil, where you were for two years and you followed the, the mahogany trade and a whole load of things, and how Western society is completely integrated into the exploitation mm. of of hardwoods and and hard people, mm. and that's the sentence that covers that. Yeah, um, yeah. But you moved from there to to East Africa in 1992, where you met members of the Maasai tribe. And from what I've read, it sort of seems to be that at that point that you started to get an appreciation for, probably for a wilder form of living, I guess, sort of a community. Um, I, I mean, I think that had always been there. I'd, I'd always been interested. I mean, I think what was different about working with the Maasai and the Tokana mm. people in East Africa, and I, I was there you know, um, for, for quite a while working on their land rights issues, working alongside them, and um, is that the pastoralist people there, the nomadic people, are very cosmopolitan and are just totally unfazed by foreigners, whoever they might be. And you can almost step straight into their society in a way that I couldn't with other people that I'd worked with. I mean, I, I, I met many amazing and fascinating people and I was in awe of them, but it, but it, uh, I, I never felt that I could just engage as an equal and be, be, be part of it. Whereas with the Maasai, I felt I could. And, you know, I'd go running with this friend I made. I mean, he was a really great guy. And um, and this is because of their sense of culture. They they believe in a society of equals. Well, it's, it's more that being transhuman, nomadic people, they... Uh-huh. they they move among many other communities sure. and so they're just very used to the idea of engaging with people who, who, who are different from them, who are different cultures. And I found them fascinating and their lives really, really absorbing and, and extraordinary. I mean, I saw basically the whole system collapsing in front of my eyes mm-hmm. um, again because of 
the World Bank and the UK government backing, in this case, um, this so-called group ranch scheme, which basically meant enclosing and dividing up the community property sure. and the and a few powerful people grabbing it all. That's, that's what happened, as indeed it has happened many, many times in history. It was when I came back from, from East Africa that it really struck me that a lot of what I'd been looking at was, you know, it was not just... Uh, generic environmental issues, generic human rights issues. These issues were intimately connected with land. Mm -hmm. Who owns it, who controls it, who's allowed onto it, who's allowed to use it, who isn't. And I then became very interested in the history of land use in the UK as well, and in the enclosures and land grabbing which had happened here. And um, with um, other people, some of whom I met on the roads protests, we launched this campaign called The Land Is Ours in 1994 to try to look at ways in which we could get back into the picture, you know, and, and get land land use distributed better. In terms of what? In terms of habitation? In terms of access well, to wild spaces? In terms of... Yeah, ev- I mean, access, everything. access, access in general. Stock. You know, access to housing, access to, yeah, to, to nature, access to decision-making. You know, where you know, we wanted to see a great democratic reform of the planning system, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a lot of uh, quite good ideas. And, and in fact, were any taken on board? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what do you expect? I mean, uh. I mean, the thing is, you know, with everything like this, you just have to accept that you're not going to win immediately. In fact, you might not even win within your own lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and the job of entire generations is just to make ready. To get your arguments marshaled, to understand how to campaign, to pass on knowledge and skills to the next generation so that when the right moment comes, we've got the tools to make use of it. And these right moments do come up every so often and everything can change very quickly indeed. But unless you're prepared for them and you've got the tools in place, things don't change in the right way. So a classic example was the 2008 crash. I mean, that was an opportunity for a complete rethinking yeah. of politics and economics. But because we didn't have a new story mm-hmm. ready, ready to deploy to say, actually, the world could be like this and this yeah. is how the economy could work, we weren't able to make use of that opportunity. And it was the same with COVID, seeing, seeing a huge amount of money being expended in a, in a heartbeat yeah, um, yeah. should have convinced the populace to realise yeah. that if we want to make a change, it's just simply mm. having a decision to do it. Yeah, and, and I think fundamentally we've been so beaten into submission that we don't believe we can make change sure. anymore. And so we're not ready to make change when the opportunity arises. And that's something I've spent my whole working life saying to people is just be ready, be ready. So here's a question. In, in 2013, you wrote Feral, mm-hmm. which is about rewilding, mm-hmm. primarily, about rewilding the countryside and rewilding our approach to it in, in many senses. And our own, and ourselves. And ourselves. Rewilding human life to some extent. In the, how many years is that? 11, I can't do no, math, no, nine no, years no, since no, you wrote it. There you yeah. go. I think there have been successful changes, whether it's been the huge success of beaver reintroduction. Yeah, yeah. What do you think has been the most successful rewilding project in terms of what you think rewilding is? Well, even if, you, even if it's just you having rewilded yourself. Yeah, no, no I mean, in, within the UK, there has been this extraordinary shift. I mean, when I published Feral, hardly anyone had heard of rewilding. Those who did mocked the concept or considered it a threat. And suddenly, like, everyone wants to rewild. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea of reintroducing beavers was highly controversial then. 
and now it's just totally commonplace. You know, yeah, of course we should reintroduce beavers. Everyone loves beavers. Why aren't we? You know, and, and storks and cranes and lots of other things as mm-hmm. well. Oh, let's have pelicans and lynx. And how about wolves? You know, and it's all the things which I thought were, yeah, I, I was, yeah, you know, I, I advocated for in the book, but I thought, well, you know, is this actually going to happen? It's just suddenly, it's just, oof, it's been happening, and it's and that's that's really exciting. The downside is, you know, that we mentioned before that it's the aristocratic rewilding model that has dominated sure. and has almost been fetishized. It's like, look what we've done with our estate, mm-hmm. you know, which, as I say, you know, is better than not doing it. Yeah. But actually... It still shouldn't be £15 to go and see it. No, well, and, and it, you know, shouldn't be just up to the landowners to decide how the land is going to be used because, you know, what allowed them to be the landowners in the first place? Sure. And us not to be. And that brings me on to Regenesis, your latest book, which is fundamentally about how we use our land, the land itself, the soil that is our land. And if my reading of it is, is to be believed that if it's about soil and about growing things, and as the book discusses, it's not simply about growing things in the soil, the soil benefits mostly from worms. So what is it about worms and soil that is so particularly sexy and set you off on a journey to write a new book about food and agriculture? Well, worms worms are really a proxy for the health of the soil. I mean, I mean, the worms themselves, they are crucial, they're critically important animals, but they're just the easiest way of measuring whether your soil is broadly healthy mm-hmm. or not. And in fact, while they're fascinating when you get to understand what they do, I mean, they're really amazing creatures. They're just one component of a totally mind-blowing, mega impossible-to-believe system that's mm-hmm. going on under our feet. And it was coming to understand that system I started to explore it a few years ago that really set me on this new track because it turns out to be one of the most diverse and abundant and fascinating living systems mm-hmm. of all and yet you know we treat it like dirt it's literally beneath us you know we're just like we walk over it and we don't think about it and we, then we trash it when we try to grow crops or we contaminated or we just concreted over and we're not thinking about it and yet 99% of our food comes from it comes from from the soil and you know if we think about it at all we think of it as an undifferentiated mass of yeah. sort of minerals and organic matter and stuff it turns out it's a biological structure it's built by the creatures that live in it from bacteria upwards but it's fractally scaled so that at every magnification the structure is the same Mm -hmm. which um, helps to explain its extraordinary resilience you know if it were just an undifferentiated mass the first rainstorm that comes along washes off the land but it's because it's structured and so the bacteria build these catacombs these little labyrinths by sticking mineral particles together with carbon they turn the carbon into the soil into polymers into cements to glue which they stick these particles together with and they create these little clumps which trap air and water in them create a sort of biological film in which they can live so they're making a habitat for themselves in the same way as a beaver builds its dam or a wasp builds its nest and then out of those little catacombs the tiny soil animals of which there's a unbelievable profusion you know there can be hundreds of thousands under a square meter of ground mm-hmm. and they then build i think you say that there's more life in the british soil than there is above ground in the amazon rainforest it, it's certainly comparable yeah. which is mad when you think about the huge amount of insect life in the amazon rainforest and and it's as little known so yeah. we reckon that 90 percent of of soil animals even in a place like england are unknown to science they haven't yet got names 
I mean, it, it's really an incredible thing. I mean, everyone should try this. Get yourself a, a 40 times magnifying loop. It only costs five pounds or mm-hmm. borrow one and dig up, particularly in the spring, early summer, that's when life's m- most abundant. Mm-hmm. Dig up a lump of soil, break it open, find the focal length. It's mind-blowing. It just springs into life. It's swarming, absolutely swarming with creatures in all shapes and sizes and colours, things you've never heard of. Diplurans, symphylids, whole huge branches of life you've never come across. And they are beautiful and extraordinary and fascinating. And it turns out absolutely crucial to our survival. And because they are creating out of the bacterial catacombs, bigger catacombs of their own, and then the ants and the worms out of those create bigger catacombs of their own, all in the same basic structure. And in doing so, they create the medium which allows plants to grow, not just to stand up in, Mm -hmm. but this is the crucial thing, the thing which changes our whole understanding. So on average, plants will dump between 10 and 40% of all the sugars they make from photosynthesis into the ground. And you think, what what are they doing? They're pouring money down the drain. I mean, it takes effort to make this Mm -hmm. stuff. But moreover, they turn some of those sugars before they dump them into tremendously complex chemicals. I mean, I mean, chemicals you know who you can't fit their their chemical name onto a standard line of text, you know, because it's so long. Your book is riddled with footnotes, which just say, just in case you want to know what it, this is what it really yes, is. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It says, um, yeah, and 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 what are they doing? Well, what they're doing is they're using those highly complex chemicals to talk. They talk in a chemical language, and they're talking to the very particular bacterial species or even genotypes within the species that they want to wake up and they're sending a signal to them saying, wake up, I need you now. You, but I don't need the rest of you, so it's just only you can hear this. They wake them up and then they saturate them with sugar. They get this massive great sugar hit and so the bacteria feed on the sugar and proliferate around the root. And those bacteria then release the minerals that the plant needs to grow because the plant can't extract them from the soil by itself. They also produce growth hormones and other critical things for the plant's growth, and they act as a defensive ring around the root, defending it against the bacteria they don't like and the other pathogens, the fungi and the rest of it that might might harm the plant. They've got particular bacteria which are defending them mm-hmm. from that. And, and the bacteria also stimulate and fire up the plant's immune system. And when you look at all that, you see something which just transforms what we thought we knew about the world. And that is that the zone of soil immediately around the root operates in exactly the same way as the human gut does. Mm -hmm. And like the human gut, it's crammed with bacteria. Like the plant, we release particular sugars to feed those bacteria. They're precise, you know, when a mother gives milk to the infant, that milk contains oligosaccharides whose sole purpose is to feed gut bacteria and to get them proliferating in the same way this plant does with its sucrose dump into the soil. Bacteria help us to release nutrients from from the food, same as they do in the soil. They defend us against pathogens, they fire up our immune system. Mm -hmm. It's the same relationship. So the the rhizosphere, which is the zone of soil immediately surrounding the plant's root, is in effect the plant's external external gut. It's amazing. But sadly, there's a whole chapter of your book dedicated to exploring how modern agriculture tries to destroy that external gut and then sets up bigger catastrophes down the line in trying to secure the 
the agricultural feeding system of the planet, we're basically destroying the one thing that grows it. But the, I think the most interesting thing about your book is that you do then go through case studies of people that appreciate the value of the soil, how they're going to do it, and make a modern form of farming that is trying to support the plants do what they're trying to do. So the first thing to say is that it's very rare to see this this new thinking followed all the way through and mm. actually working. There's a lot of people who say, I'm preserving the soil, I'm doing yeah. this and I'm doing that, and, and not much of it really stacks up in the way that's claimed. But there's this very remarkable grower called Ian Tolhurst, Tolly, who has really cracked it, and he's worked out a way to greatly increase the fertility of his soil, greatly increase his yields of vegetables and fruit, which is what he grows, so that he's hit the lower bound of conventional yields mm -hmm. without any fertilizers, any manure, or any input at all except one millimeter of wood chip per year. And he uses that as an inoculant to stimulate bacterial and, and fungal growth in the soil and the relationship between that and plants. And what he's done is to discover the missing element, mm -hmm. that the one tiny thing that was missing from his system which then changes the regulation of fertility because soil fertility now turns out to be as much a function of the biology as of the chemistry. Sure. And if you can get the biology right, you can cut the additional chemistry out. Mm -hmm. And that is the holy grail. That's what we need to be aiming for. Now, at the moment, we're torn between two equally destructive forces, which are intensive agriculture sure. and extensive agriculture. Intensive agriculture rips up the soil, doses the land with poisons, packs millions of animals together in horrible factories and treats them appallingly and then spreads their dung over the fields and it all goes into the river, etc. We all know what's wrong with that. Yeah. So people say, oh, the answer is extensive agriculture. Let's have animals grazing hours in the field, pasture, nice beef and all the rest of it. Yeah. What extensive means by definition is needing more land to produce the same amount of food. Now, something I've been trying to get across till I'm blue in the face is one of the most important of all environmental metrics, possibly the most important of all, is the amount of land we use. Mm -hmm. Because any land that we're using for an extractive human activity is land not given over to wild ecosystems. It's land we can't use for forests, so we, we can't g give back for forests, we can't give back for wetlands, we can't give back for savannas, for all the other wonderful ecosystems which are so, so threatened. Um, you know, habitat destruction is the major cause of, of, of wildlife loss, it's driving the sixth great extinction. The major cause of habitat destruction mm -hmm. is grazing by livestock. While crops occupy 12% of the world's land area, grazing by livestock occupies 28%. Right? And animals that live on grazing alone provide just 1% of our protein. It's an unbelievably profligate, extravagant use of that crucial environmental resource, which is land. Yeah. And so people say the problem is intensive farming. No, no, no. The problem is not the adjective. It's the noun. Sure. What's driving destruction is farming. And it's a combination of intensive farming, which is really damaging to ecosystems, chemicals, soil destruction, stuff, and extensive farming, which is really damaging to ecosystems because it, it uses so, so many of them up. It, it displaces yeah. so much. Its ecological opportunity cost is enormous. Yeah, even even as it stands, you say that the UK's land is populated, uh, the 7% of it is populated by humans, whereas 51% of it is grazing livestock. Yeah, it's just amazing. But, so my question is, if Tolly has cracked it in inverted commas, and even he says it looks like it's sustainable, but we won't yet know for 100 years, yeah. 
I mean, in your book, you, you say how he rises at five, has two days off a year, uh, works tirelessly to achieve carbon neutrality, but gets paid about £70 a week, mm-hmm. only gets half his state pension, and he lives in his own barn. Like, I don't know if, if the British people are prepared to work with their hands in the way that he marvellously does. Yeah, yeah. It, there's, there's something fundamentally crocked about the agricultural economy. Mm. And part of it is the way subsidies are distributed. So, yeah, at the moment, between 500 and 600 billion dollars a year are spent on farm subsidies. I mean, it's an unbelievable amount of money. If you think of, you know, governments have totally failed to provide the 100 billion they said they would for climate finance. And yet here they are splashing out 500 or 600 billion a year on farm subsidies almost all of which supports highly destructive activities. In fact, the more destructive you are, generally, the more money you get given. (laughs) Um, And in fact, you get directly, I mean, the EU's common agricultural policy pays you for environmental destruction. You can't get that money unless you've cleared the wildlife habitats off the land. Your basic payment scheme, you won't get the money unless you've trashed what they call permanent ineligible features, and you and I know as wildlife habitat. Now, look, if there's this huge amount of money we're prepared to spend on farming, let's mm. spend it on supporting the farming which we want to see, which should be the farming which preserves the living planet whilst feeding people. So in other words, farming which is both high yield and low impact. Well, you come up with two suggestions in the book, one of which is perennial crops that uh, you don't need to replant so it saves the effort and labour that goes into it, some of which we are getting up to almost as high a yield as traditional mm. In the uh, case crops. of perennial rice, it, it, is, it um, is up there. It's the same as annual rice yield. So that's part... I mean, none of these are the complete answer. Mm-hmm. You have to draw... Well, there's no there's never one. No, exactly. So, 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 yeah, perennial crops is one, but you can couple that with some of the things that Tolly and soil scientists have been disco- discovering about how to just tweak your soil a tiny bit mm-hmm. to massively enhance plant growth. And, and decrease the amount of labour that you need to put into it. Well, so, so I mean, you, you're definitely talking about systems in horticulture which require a lot of labour, not necessarily so much in arable, um, mm-hmm. but a part of the labour is going to be finding out more about the soil, you know, and, and massive... Mapping and characterization. We're talking about an Earth rover project. Yeah, we've done on Mars, sending out a a, a metaphorical robot to find out what's going on in the ground. Well, interestingly, I've now been talking to um, a group of scientists in different disciplines, and we've started pulling that together. Um, So, through remote sensing, and uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's very early stages. We're doing proof of concept at the moment, and the idea is to find a cheap, highly replicable way of characterizing soil type soil quality soil state and condition um, it's what we do with woodlands already woodlands are categorized by what they've got there in terms of the tree build up the percentage mm, of that tree yeah. to the other ratio we we're very good at mapping exactly. things normally we just right. never thought to look beneath the surface i know i know and it's extraordinary because we know so little about the soil we don't know what those tiny interventions might be in any particular place mm-hmm. which could which could make the difference between a broadly infertile soil and a broadly fertile one sure. without having to put lashings of either artificial fertilizers or manure which is extremely damaging in the way it's applied in agricultural settings mm-hmm. it's not a natural thing to do no. as people claim um, but if we can find a way of of avoiding both of those and using soil biology interventions to mediate fertility then you know that's part of the problem solving. I'm not saying it's the whole sure. thing, but but it's it's got to be a big part of it. But for that to happen, we need to know an awful lot more about what's going on below the surface. So we're bringing together a, a, a series of different remote sensing technologies with machine learning, generate a huge amount of data, 
use machine learning to to analyze it um, to provide what we hope will be a toolkit that farmers can use greatly to reduce um, their necessary impacts amazing and so yeah that's all part of it and then I want to take a lot of food production out of farming altogether. Well, that's the fun thing. We started talking about bacteria in terms mm. of what's in the soil and making it a wonderful place and a productive place mm. and a stuck-together place that we like to rip apart. Bacteria might also be a solution, which seems a bit cruel to bacteria to say that you're wonderful and we should leave you there doing what you're doing, but also can we take some of you and mass-produce you and ferment you and yeah. eat you? Yes, well, well, it's kind of that or animals. So, um, yeah. you know, and, and if you... Look at that way round, you say, well, you know, which suffers more? Yeah, it's the animals. And, you know, if, if someone were to come along and say, I've got this great new idea, you know, we're going to get our protein and fat from capturing a few wild animals, you know, like the wild cow, the aurochs, mm -hmm. um, the jungle fowl, that'd be another good one, the wild boar, there's this weird woolly thing in Mesopotamia called a sheep, we'll have that as well, <laughs> and we're going to domesticate them and we're going to breed them up and we'll only need to kill like 75 billion of them every year and we'll keep them all packed together in these huge great barns, we'll separate the young from the adults, we'll mm -hmm. castrate them, we'll tusk them, we'll dehorn them all with animals. And make them have sex with their relatives, don't uh, forget that, yeah, that's always a good bet. Yes, that's right. And then we'll kill them, you know, we'll stun them and cut their throats and then we'll chop them up and then we'll eat the bits of them. You know, if, if we weren't doing that already and someone came along and suggested it, I mean, it would be about the most horrifying suggestion we'd ever heard. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine it the other way around. Imagine we were doing what I'm proposing in the book, which is we use these new technologies of precision fermentation to make the protein and fat we require from microbes, from brewing microbes in vats. And it's not difficult. It's already being done. We can scale it up very easily. My calculation suggests that we could produce all the protein required by 10 billion people in an area smaller than Greater London. All the world's protein. And the 76% of land which is devoted to animal farming can go back to nature, ecosystems can recover, we can stop the sixth great extinction in its tracks, we can draw down two-thirds of the carbon dioxide likely to be produced this century, we can stop climate breakdown, we can prevent the collapse of our life support systems. And what's the cost of that? Eating eating microbes in, instead of animals. Why is that a problem? Why is it a problem when a chicken breast tastes of nothing anymore? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, you basically... The great majority of chicken, 98% you know, of it is produced in these huge barns, these chicken factories, and it's bland, generic white protein. And then you add the flavourings, you know, you put the sauces or the crust on it or whatever it is to, to make it into your nuggets or your curry or whatever. Yeah. And you say, wait, wait a minute, we're killing 66 billion birds a year to produce a generic white protein. Yeah, you can produce that in a vat. Mm -hmm. You do not need to do that. And then you can add your flavorings or whatever. Or indeed, you know, you with, with gene editing or selection, you, you can actually do it even without even adding the flavorings. Yeah. You know, they, they, can, they can be inherent in it. And in fact, we can produce a huge range of potential foods. You know, people talk a lot about substituting meat, which is fine. You know, yeah, let's do that. Let's substitute meat and milk and eggs. That's fine. All that. But then, you can produce an enormous range of novel foods which no one's ever even thought about. Just like when people first domesticated an aurochs, no one was thinking about camembert. Yeah. But we ended up with camembert. Well, who knows? Who knows where this will lead? So there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Mm. Um, the first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Mm. Oh, well, 
imagining I could transport myself over oh, that carbon emissions, of course. <laughs> oh. I'll give you an infinite offset. Yeah, I think it would be the cloud forests in Colombia, probably. I've never been there. Well, I've never been there. They look amazing. It's a whole ecosystem which I haven't explored. I've, I've, I mean, I've been, yeah, I was briefly in a cloud forest in West Papua, but we were having to move pretty fast, so I didn't have time to appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, but it's probably been completely trashed by now, as much as West Papua has been. But, yeah, I'd, I'd like to explore that. Have but, you cut out flying? Yeah, I haven't flown for a long time, and I, I, I don't know what it would take to get me on a plane again. Sure. I, it's, um, it is a very damaging activity. So, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to cut out all the things which cause great damage um and you know i won't always succeed in every respect but you know i'm doing my best um yeah all second-hand clothes stop eating meat or you know, vegan and all that stuff mm-hmm. um it's, it's not an answer you know it's a partial answer but you need systemic change as well yeah. you know you can't do it all, all yourself you know with the whole sort of um, fallacy of neoliberalism is that you can individuate responsibility for systemic and structural problems and you know we need to act as citizens before we act as consumers or sure. alongside, you know, but primarily we act as citizens. Second question, who is your natural history hero? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I, I don't have heroes. I really don't have heroes because you're likely to be disappointed for a start, mm-hmm. but also because everything is contingent all the time. You know, you're just constantly having to challenge everything and everyone. Um, as the facts change, as scientific discoveries are made, and also as you begin to think, mm, I'm not sure they quite got that right. And if you put anyone on a pedestal, then you really inhibit your chances of doing that. So, yeah, I'm not a hero kind of guy. Do you feel like you've been put on a pedestal? I mean, it, there's always that danger. I mean, I don't. I really don't want to be. I really don't want to be because you know I will only disappoint people. <laughs> <if> <laughs> I have. Yeah, because you know, you, I mean, I've I've had situations where I've changed my mind about something and people get really angry. And I trusted you. I believed in you. And you say, well, yeah, you know, if if I allowed that to dominate my thinking, mm-hmm. you know, that I've got to keep particular followers on board you know then I would really limit that thinking and you have to be prepared to to change your mind and 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 that will really upset people and anger people particularly some of your biggest fans but you know you can't afford to think too much about your fans and you can't afford to see yourself as a hero because that's when the rot sets in sure and it's the contingency of life that I value. I mean, I've got, you know, obviously, I want the stability of life too. Mm-hmm. I want life to persist, but I, but in nature, you're constantly reminded of contingency. You know that that when something changes, you know, the positive things change in ecosystems, like mm-hmm. the reintroduction of a missing predator or something. The whole ecosystem will change sure. through trophic cascades, through uh, the sort of systemic nature of a living system. And it can change in very positive ways. And if you try to impede that change, you can prevent the, the, the recovery of that ecosystem. But it is also the same in the wider scale. You know, if you try to, to if you try to lock your thinking down and, 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 and shut out the challenges to it, then you will impede that political recovery, sure. that wider understanding of what needs to be done. You don't have to answer this question, but it's a quite personal one. 
do your children believe what you believe? Have they followed you? Or does, have they done what you did with your, your parenting yeah. and sort of gone in a different direction? Um, I mean, it's the opportunity of children is to listen and disagree. Yeah, yeah, no. I, I mean, I've been very careful not to impose it on them. You know, I want them to find their own way and their own interests. And they're, they're doing that. And, and some of those interests sort of align a bit and some of them much less so but that's you know that's fine that you know they've got to find their own way you know i don't i don't want them to be a mini me and they certainly sure. don't want that either and um it's the, another mistake we make you know just as we impose ourselves on living systems we impose ourselves on other people and sure. say you know the right way to be is this i don't know if it's if the right way to be is this or that mm-hmm. i really don't you know I, i'm here I am, I'm 59, and I still, still haven't worked out what the right way of living is because maybe there isn't a, a definitively right way. It's one of the fun things, actually, having reread Feral for this interview and read Regenesis, is realising that in those nine years, you're, you're out canoeing and mackerel fishing and eating said fish, and then you're a vegan nine years later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you should do a second edition of Parallel and no, remove no, your pescatarian past? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, in in truth, you know, if I had the opportunity, I probably would catch the odd fish. You know, because on on rod and line, it's not so damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not for me. You know, it's it's not an absolutist thing. It, it isn't. You know, and that if there's a totally undamaging thing you can do. I mean, for instance, I'd still eat roadkill. Okay. You know, um, in this country, I'd eat wild venison because um, we are overpopulated with deer. Hugely at the moment, yeah, after COVID. Um, yeah, and so, so you know, I'm not taking an absolutist position. I shouldn't really call myself a vegan. It'd be more accurate to say a plant-based diet because, you know, just occasionally, I will vary it in those ways. It's about impact sure. from my point of view and minimising that impact because, you know, we should apply that Kantian principle that if... If you can't make this a general rule, don't do it. (laughs) If if you don't want, if if everyone can't do it, you shouldn't do it. And that's you know the fundamental problem with this whole issue of sort of organic pasture-fed beef. You know, the only reason large numbers of people can eat organic pasture-fed beef is that huge tracts of the planet are being used to produce it, including large areas of the Amazon now, where it's being relabeled as pasture-fed rather than rainforest-destroyed beef. you know, and it's still an expensive and exclusive product yeah. even then. You know, and if you were to reduce the land area used, it would become highly exclusive and expensive. And and so this whole idea that you know you can reconcile these things, you just can't. You yeah. know, because you can't generalize it. I have completely reassessed my belief in the organic labelling after having read your book, mm. but I won't go into that now. Yeah. Um, third question: If you could bring any species back from extinction, mm. what would it be? Straight tusk elephant. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Well, this was our elephant. This I love how quickly you are. <laughs> yeah, this is what I thought about. Um, <laughs> so um, during the last interglacial, the Eemian period, um, just over 100,000 years ago, Britain um, had a climate very similar to today's and it had all the same sort of wildlife. It had hedgehogs and robins and blackbirds and magpies and elephants and rhinos and hippos and hyenas and scimitar cats. We, we had a megafauna, mm-hmm. you know, just like everywhere had a megafauna. Yeah. Megafaunas are the default state of all ecosystems. And the only reason why they're now confined to a few tiny spots, principally in Africa and Asia, is that we've wiped them out everywhere else. Uh, they're, they're always the first to go. They're the most vulnerable to human intervention. And during the Eemian, when there weren't people 
here. They didn't come back after the previous glaciation, not until not until the next one. There weren't people in Britain. We we had these enormous beasts shaping the ecosystem, and our trees still um, you know we, we live in a ghost ecosystem our trees are still responding to the animals that are no longer mm. there this is why deciduous trees can coppice and pollard it's why the understory trees so they carry less weight and are subject to lower shear forces from the wind are so much tougher uh, and harder to break than the overstory trees because elephants can reach their crowns and pull them down sure. and the straight tusked elephant was this massive beast with a huge neck and shoulders. It was a tree-trashing elephant, and um, it made the African elephant look like a ballet dancer. And this was a monstrous beast. And by smashing trees up, tearing limbs um, of, of trees, it created a huge number of habitats, all the sort of holes and the rotten wood and the crevasses and things, which a very wide range of life from birds and bats to insects and and many other species require for their survival and we now have largely empty forests because so many of them are just sort of straight poles without all those wonderfully twisty craggy crabby Mm -hmm. deformities that um, that is absolutely essential to a thriving forest ecosystem and that's what the elephants gave us should we try and reintegrate elephants into the British Isles well so far the clamour for their reintroduction has been muted but um, I'll keep working on it (laughs) Um, and one final uh, question just for you you've got a magic red button a glowing magic red button but you get to 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 choose what will happen when you press said red button Um, but you've got two options you press it and it wipes out all grazing livestock Mm -hmm. or you press it and it wipes out all political lobbyists. <laughs> so would you rather get rid of livestock or lobbyists? When you say wipe out... <laughs> Gone, but like the, the aftermath would be that of a, a William Morris-like utopia rather than yeah. uh, well, loads of people out well, of well, I mean, because there's no what, sheep to farm. I'm thinking of what happens to the, to, to, to the people. You know, do, do you turn them into deeply moral beings who then um, work for the benefit of humankind rather than against it? If so, it would definitely be the lobbyists. <laughs> Because fundamentally, that's what it's all about. I mean, that's why good stuff doesn't happen. Uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, uh, well, I mean, there's lobbyists and lobbyists, aren't there? They're, they're NGOs who are lobbying for good stuff, but they are massively overwhelmed by the corporate lobbies um, of legacy industries, you know, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's livestock, mm-hmm. whether it's um, the big grain barons and, and the chemical companies and the rest of it who impede change, you know, and... and Already, for instance, you know, with climate, we have all the tools we need to decarbonise our economies and make the energy transition. Why are we not doing it? Because of political lobbying. And it's, it's rapidly becoming the same in agriculture. You know, we've developed them much later, but they're now coming. We're, we're gaining these tools. But what stands in the way of deployment is not the cost, because they will be cheaper, just as now renewable energy is cheaper than gas and oil. Mm-hmm. Although kept way. at the same price, because that's how electricity works these days. Even Well, yeah, no, 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 that's right. But yeah. the actual generation is, is now yeah. cheaper. Exactly. Um, but that doesn't, there's no automaticity in that. It doesn't translate instantly in, into that change, because you've got the lobbying power of the legacy industry standing in the way and stopping that from happening. And they invest billions into it into buying politicians effectively into buying policy mm-hmm. to stop that change from happening and it's a bit like the dieting thing you know it's it's not the salads you eat it's the chocolate cake and the ice creams you stop eating sure. you know and we've got to stop 
doing the bad stuff that's much more important than developing yet more technologies and because we actually pretty well got all the technologies we need mm -hmm. we just need to deploy them and get the legacy industries out of the way George thank you very much that's fantastic thanks David thanks so much it's really great to talk to you super And that is that. A massive thank you to George and to his PA fee for helping kick off the fourth season of Trees A Crowd with so much food for thought. But if that isn't enough nourishment for you and you fancy a way of supporting my potacular endeavours further, there is a morsel more from George over on our Patreon account. You can hear what he says when I ask him whether or not he hates sheep. <laughs> a link to the Patreon and some written meanderings of mine following this meeting with Monbio can be found alongside all my previous interviews and a link to buy George's new book at treesacrowd.fm. Thank you as always to my editor Ollie and with that I will be back for the foreseeable future every first Tuesday of each new month and in June we'll be exploring the juncture of nature with art. Thank you very much for tuning back in, and I'm very excited about where this fourth season's going to take us. Bye bye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.